Good morning, One Tribe. It's Daniel in Chiang Rai, Thailand. What an amazing joy and privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. I trust that you are doing well and that God has seen you through this crazy COVID-19 pandemic season. And not just seen you through, but that you are actually stronger and more resilient than ever before and ready to tackle the multiplying mission that God has for you. We are doing well here in Thailand. There is a fresh season of the Holy Spirit's wind and life-giving rain that is upon us. And I trust that one tribe is experiencing a similar increase in his presence and power. I'm going to be sharing this morning out of the Gospel of John, chapter 6. It's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's the only miracle, other than the miracle of the resurrection, that appears in all four of the Gospels. God put this word on my heart for you back in January. I was in the middle of preparing a sermon for our church out of this same passage when I received an email from Imbonisi inviting me to prepare this video sermon message for you guys. And he let me know that actually the topic would be spirit empowerment for the vision of multiplication that God has given one tribe. I knew right away that there was something out of John 6 that God wanted me to prophetically encourage you with for this time. And it's the, this, and it's two parts. The first part is, in your multiplying journey, lean not on the strengths you have in the flesh, but humbly depend on the Spirit's multiplying grace and power. And the second one is, for the lowliest among you, in Jesus' hands, you are more than enough for him to be able to use you as he gathers in and feeds the nations. Now the passage for today is John 6 verses 5 to 11. And I'll go ahead and read this passage. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brothers, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. This passage starts with Jesus lifting up his eyes. He sees a large crowd coming toward him. And I want to ask you this question. Jesus' eyes are lifted up and sees a crowd coming toward him. Where are your eyes? What do you see? Are you looking where Jesus is looking? Are you seeing what he sees? This morning, I want to encourage you to lift up your eyes. Up from the COVID-19 pandemic, up from all of the depressing news from around the world that we see every day, Look up from the problems of your daily life. 
Look up from the problems that you might have regarding money or business. Look up from the problems that you might have in your family or other relationships. I just want to ask you to lift your eyes up for a moment and look. Look where Jesus is looking. What is he looking at? I want to ask you to use your spiritual eyes and look into Nairobi. Look into your neighborhood. Look into your schools, your workplaces, your markets, your entertainment venues. Now I want you to look beyond Nairobi. Look at the rest of Kenya, the rest of East Africa, the entire African continent. And I want you to look even further into the very ends of the earth, the very ends of the earth, the places that are on the other side of the planet from where you are. What do you see? What does Jesus see? And I think this is what Jesus sees. The same thing as he saw in John 4. Look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. My friends, can you see it? You won't be able to see it with your fleshly eyes. You need the sight that comes from above. You need to have the eyes that can see into the invisible, into the spiritual, into the eternal. And I just want to take a moment right now to pray. And I ask God to help you to be able to see. Heavenly Father, I ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that every soul at one tribe, everyone who is listening to this message, would be able to see the fields, would be able to see the lost souls that are ripe for harvesting. In Jesus' name. Now that you see, what does Jesus want you to do about it? What does Jesus want you to do about it? In our passage today, Jesus tests his disciple Philip. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He did this not because he was expecting Philip to really go and buy bread. He did it because he knew that the natural thing that Philip would do was to try to find an earthly solution. And so Philip's response is, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. What Philip is saying is, Jesus, I could work for six months and I wouldn't come even close to being able to feed all of these people. You are asking for the impossible. Jesus, you are asking me to do the impossible. Precisely. The work of the gospel, the work of gospel multiplication is an impossible task for us, but not for God. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. The work of gospel ministry is the work of God bringing dead people to life. 
In Ezekiel 36, God likens salvation to him removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a new heart of flesh. One chapter later in Ezekiel 37, it's likened to the breath of God bringing dead bones back to life. I know that your pastor, Mbonisi, is a medical doctor. Next time you see him, ask him. Ask him if he's ever seen any medical journals where there is a report of a man who was born with a heart of stone. And that later on in life, he received a procedure and received a transplant of a brand new heart of flesh. Ask him if there is a medical procedure for doing something like that. Ask him if during medical school, he was taught how to speak to bones and breathe on them to be able to bring people back to life. It's not just a very difficult task. Gospel multiplication is an impossible task without God. You see, what Philip didn't realize was that the people were hungry for more than just earthly bread. They were hungry for the bread that comes from heaven, the manna, the bread of life that came down, was broken for us on the cross, and it's the only food that can satisfy us eternally. And what Philip also didn't realize was was that Jesus came from heaven to earth precisely to supply this bread and that he was simply inviting his disciples to join him in this mission. One tribe's vision of mission and multiplication is actually God's mission. And he finishes everything that he sets out to accomplish. Will you join him? He is the bread of life. He is the one who is going to feed his sheep. And he's inviting you to come along for the ride. Will you join him? Now you might be thinking, well, what does that mean to join God in his mission? And it's simply this. For us to entrust ourselves completely, give everything that we are, everything that we have into his mighty hands and trust that he's going to be able to do it. In this passage, there was a boy with the humblest of meals. He had two little fish and five little pieces of flat bread made of wild barley. Probably was barley that was gathered for free. It was the humble meal of a child or young servant, but in the hands of God, it was more than enough. And he was able to feed the people, every single soul that came to be with him that day as much as they could need or want. And this is the amazing reality about our God is that our limitations are never limits for what God is able to do. I don't know if you know, but some people actually don't believe that the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle at all. They have a natural explanation for this event. That, you know, as the five loaves and the two fish were being shared and distributed among the people, that the people had brought their own food with them. And that as people began sharing, everybody started to chip into the sharing. And that's why there was so much food and enough for everybody to eat and plenty left over. Well, what do you think? Is there a natural explanation for the feeding of the 5,000? Or was it a supernatural miracle? And I think Luke's gospel is helpful for this, especially the NLT and the NASB translations. 
because they do a better job, I think, of describing the imperfect tense of the act of Jesus distributing the bread and the fish. The NLT reads, He kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He kept giving the bread and the fish to his disciples so that they could distribute it to the people. The NASB says that he gave them to the disciples again and again. He gave it to them again and again. It wasn't just one act and then the human beings providing the meal. He kept on giving out of the bread and the fish again and again. And the amazing thing is that rather than directly giving it to the people from out of his own hands, he gave the bread and the fish into the hands of the disciples so that they could join him in his mission and they could be the ones that were directly feeding the crowd that had come to be with Jesus. And when the people saw this sign that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, have you ever gone to a park with a picnic lunch and you sit down on the grass to eat and you take out a sandwich, you start eating it, and then after you start eating, you look over to a man who's standing over there and say, wow, thank you for this sandwich. Did you just make this out of thin air? You must be God. Of course not. That makes no sense. There is no natural explanation for what happened. A natural explanation is illogical. The only explanation that makes sense is that the feeding of the 5,000 was a supernatural demonstration of God's multiplying power. One tribe, you have to be spirit-led and spirit-empowered in your pursuit of fulfilling the vision and mission that God has given you. Because the multiplication that you seek is going to require God's supernatural power. Now I'm going to share a couple of stories from seeing God do amazing, miraculous things here in Thailand. Now when I first came to Thailand, I had all this youthful passion and energy to see God's kingdom come. And I was getting ready. I read every book on mission that I could find. I studied methodologies. I studied missiology. I, I went to countless trainings and conferences so that I can gain as much information as I could to learn all of the best practices and the knowledge that I needed in order to be a good evangelist and a church planner. I wanted to be the best one that I could be. And about a year and a half in of us being in Thailand, Actually, God gave our church a vision, a very similar vision to the vision that he's given you for what he wanted us to do in Chiang Rai and in Thailand. And we came up with this vision statement, and it's that we wanted to be a church that lights Chiang Rai with the fullness of Christ and ignites a united movement of indigenous churches that have an impact in Thailand and beyond. And once I got this sense of vision and mission, I actually set out on a bicycle. It was pretty funny when I think about it now because it's very much like the Mormons. Um, but I wanted to use my efforts and all this knowledge that I had gained about sharing the gospel and my testimony to fulfill God's mission. I even bought a bike for my Thai translator. And we began riding our bikes from house to house 
throughout the neighborhoods in the heat and the humidity of Thailand, just dripping sweat and being tired, uh, trying to evangelize. After several weeks of doing it my way, we were able to share the gospel with hundreds of people, but we saw no salvations. We got to pray for some people, and don't get me wrong, it was still a very good experience for us. We did see a couple of small miracles and some healings, but no one crossed the line of faith and received Jesus during that time. So after several weeks, one morning prior to going out to evangelize, we're praying, and to be honest, at that time, I was feeling a little bit discouraged at not being able to see fruit, not being able to see results. And as we sat to pray, I really felt like we were supposed to slow down and ask God what it was that we were supposed to do. And so I told uh, Joe, who was my translator at the time, I think we need to seek God and ask the Holy Spirit what we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to go, and how we're supposed to do it. And as the two of us are praying, Joe feels as if God is leading him towards a school called Tantip. It was a boarding school for underprivileged kids, and he had been invited by this Christian teacher that was at the school that he played soccer with uh, to come and maybe teach the kids some soccer and teach them some English and uh, maybe even have a group where he could share about Jesus to the Christian kids that were at the school. Only the Buddhist had, only the Buddhists at this school had an opportunity to have any religious activities and they wanted to change that. So I said, you know what? I didn't really come to Thailand to uh, just do a Bible study for kids, but you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's go for it. Now, before we went, my extensive study on how to do mission had taught me that before doing something like this, we should do a prayer walk. That was a part of the methodology that I had learned. And that especially we should do some prayer walking and praying against Satan at the nearby temples and the dedicated high places. So the day that we decided to go to the school and prayer walk, we first went to this temple um, that was on top of this hill uh, overlooking the school. And we just prayed against Satan and prayed for openness and an opportunity, which I don't think is wrong to do, but it was what we decided to do first. And then so we step onto the campus and as soon as we get there, actually we were just there to prayer walk, but Joe's friend who teaches at the school comes out to greet us. And he brings out his girlfriend and asks if we might be able to pray for her. And so initially in my heart, I was thinking, hey, you know what, we came here just to prayer walk. I wasn't planning on engaging in ministry. I wasn't planning on sharing the gospel today. I wasn't planning on praying for healing, um, but we could see that she was in a lot of pain and we didn't wanna say no. So we said, okay, uh, why not? Why don't we go ahead and pray? And so we laid hands on her and we began praying, but I thought God probably won't do anything because we haven't had a chance to pray prayer walk this school yet. So after we pray, actually we ask her, do you feel better? Have you received healing? And she was polite and she was shy towards us, and, but she said no. But I'll never forget the look that she gave to her boyfriend. She kind of turned her head and glared at him with anger. She was mad that he made her get up out of bed even though her back was hurting and that he had made her waste her time coming out to meet us and receive prayer from us. And so I was a little bit discouraged. They went back to their room and then I turned to Joe and I said, see, uh, I knew God wasn't going to heal her. We're just here to do a prayer walk. So after praying for her, uh, we continued to prayer walk. But a few minutes later, Joe gets a text message from his friend. And the message says, hey, 
My girlfriend said that her back is actually feeling better. It's not 100% yet, but it's feeling better. Can you guys come back and pray for her again? So we go back to this couple. We lay hands on her again and pray. But this time, God gives me a word of knowledge that her back pain, although it's physical, is related to some unforgiveness that she has toward an older man in her life. And that she's angry with this person, but needs to release forgiveness and bitterness in order to be able to receive healing in her back. Now, as I'm telling her this, her eyes get really big. And she looks scared and looks in awe and says, how did you know that? And then she goes on to share that actually that week she had had a fight with her boss, who was an older man and who was the owner of the restaurant where she worked. And she said that she was at her boyfriend's house and hadn't gotten to work because she had had a fight with this man and was angry with him and was planning to not go back to work ever again. So we laid hands on her and prayed for her again and asked God to be able to help her forgive her boss and receive healing for her back. And immediately her back pain, as well as the negative feelings that she had been harboring in her heart went away. And she was amazed and grateful. It's just an incredible story, unexpected thing that happened. And so after that experience, we turn around and we want to continue our prayer walk. But, and we notice this young man, he was sweeping, a 15-year-old guy named Chai. And he sees us and I think he's been seeing what's been happening with this lady. And he approaches us and says, hey, who are you guys? What are you guys doing here? And we tell him that we're Christians and that we're here to pray because we want to share with the people of this school about who Jesus is. And he says, really? He seems really excited. He says, I've been waiting to meet a Christian. And he begins to, he begins to tell the story about how his dad is in prison for drugs, but that while he was in prison, his dad had encountered a Christian and thought that Christianity was good and that his plan was that when he was able to be released from prison, he would return home and that his whole family would become Christian again. But in Chai's mind, he thought, well, why do I have to wait for my dad to be released from prison? And so he had been waiting to meet a Christian, to tell him about Jesus, to tell him the gospel so that he could cross the line of faith. So we prayed for this young man and his situation with his father, and we shared the gospel with him. And he wanted to respond right away. There was an instant response. He wanted to be a Christian. And it was surprising to me because we had spent so much time evangelizing and evangelizing the hundreds of people and not seeing anything like this. But God had decided that today was the day for Chai. We even tried to talk him out of it and told him that he would have to put away his Buddhist and animistic ways and that he needed to be 100% sure about Jesus because he wouldn't be able to return back to his old ways. And after hearing all of that, he said, no, 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 I'm 100% sure. And we prayed with him and led him to accept Jesus that day. Now, both of these things took place on the first day of several years, a very fruitful ministry that we had at this school. And we had the privilege of joining Jesus as he saved dozens of his precious children and gave us opportunity to spiritually feed hundreds of these kids um, over that time period at this school. So I want to remind you of this prophetic encouragement that I had in the beginning. In your multiplying journey, lean not on the strengths you have in the flesh, but humbly depend on the Spirit's multiplying grace and power. 
I'm going to tell you another story. At around the same time, we were having a morning devotion at our ministry property. To be nice, we would invite the two minority hill tribe ladies who were the housekeepers of the property to join us for our times of worship and prayer. And as I'm praying for one of these ladies this morning, her name is Yupin, the Holy Spirit just falls on me and I'm just washed over with his love for her and I'm weeping and I'm praying in tongues and God gives me this clear vision of her standing in a rural village with a microphone and a portable speaker evangelizing. I share this picture with her and I tell her that actually I don't think you're supposed to be our housekeeper anymore. I think God wants to use you as an evangelist. Now she seemed really confused and she politely declined and said that she wouldn't feel comfortable doing something like that. She said she had never done anything like that before, that she was an orphan, uh, never received any formal education, that she was not really literate, had not studied the Bible, and that she'd felt like she was inadequate. She didn't have what it took to be able to do that work. And so I accepted that, but I still held on to this picture. Uh, and after that day, for about seven months, I continued to ask her from time to time, hey, how are things going? I think you're supposed to be an evangelist. I don't think you're supposed to be a housekeeper anymore. What do you think? And she would always uh, have the same response. She said, I don't think I can, but I will pray about it. That was her response. I don't think I can, but I will pray about it. And after about seven months of really, it probably felt like I was badgering her because I continued to hold on to this thing. She comes to me one morning, just full of excitement and joy and hope. And it was different than other days. And she tells me that there is a nearby village of an unreached people group called the Red Lahu, who has invited her and her church to come do an outreach for them for Christmas. And I've been waiting for this. It's taken seven months for her to get this faith and to muster up the courage to be able to do something like this. And I say, yes, 100%, let's do it. We'll get behind you, we'll support you, we'll go and we'll evangelize in this village. But before she turns uh, to leave, she actually says, oh, by the way, can you buy us a portable speaker system? Because the village that we'll be going to doesn't have electricity. And so we'll need to take a battery-powered portable speaker with us. Now, when I heard that, it, I was just buzzing. I was so excited and so happy. It was just a confirmation of the picture that God had given me. And I was probably grinning from year to year. So Christmas comes around. We go and do an outreach at this village. We're able to share gifts. We have games for the kids. And we share about Jesus. And right after our outreach, just the following week, the first person in that village comes to faith. And this was a village that we later find out two years prior to us going, there were two Christians that had gone to evangelize and the villagers had killed them because they didn't want to hear anything about Jesus. Now, I don't know if we knew that, if we would have gone, we probably would have still, um, but it was just this amazing story of this hard soil that God opened up and allowed there for an opportunity for people to come to faith. So after that, two or three people come to faith. And in the coming months, we saw 40 to 50 people come to faith. And we ended up planting a church there. We ended up building them a church building for the Christians in this village. Now, all of this, this multiplication came off the back 
of a housekeeper turned evangelist. She was poor. She was orphaned. She was uneducated, illiterate. She had no experience. And it didn't matter. It was more than enough for what God wanted to do. It was more than enough in the hands of an almighty God. So back to my second prophetic encouragement for the people that are listening to this message right now, especially those of you who view yourself lowly, those who are humble in spirit, the lowliest, lowliest among you in Jesus's hands are more than enough to be used by him as he gathers in and feeds the nations. One little last story, and then I'm done. One day, we are hosting a short-term missions team. This is months after we had began our work in this village. And we end up taking this missions team back to this village to evangelize and see if God might give us an opportunity to see more people cross the line of faith. And we go and we gather probably around 20 people, about 12 adults plus their children, and we're gathered in the wood hut, a home of uh, one of the Christians there. We begin evangelizing and sharing the gospel with this group. But at the most critical part of the gospel presentation, it all of a sudden begins thundering and pouring rain. Now, in Southeast Asia, it rains hard. And it was the rain was falling so hard on the corrugated tin roof of the wood hut where we were that you couldn't hear the person standing next to you. And the people couldn't hear what it was that we were saying. They were distracted and they were just actually staring out the window at the rain rather than listening to the things that we were saying. And in my heart, I became so frustrated. Initially, I wanted to be mad at Satan, but I know that Satan doesn't have the power to make it rain or not rain. And so I was tempted uh, to be angry at God. I said, Lord, we're here for your mission. We're here for your purposes. We're here to share the gospel with the lost. And right now you have to make it rain. The people aren't able to hear what it is that we're saying. Couldn't you have waited an hour or two hours to be able to bring the rain? But what was surprising to me was despite the fact that I don't think the people actually heard the message, after the gospel presentation was done and the rain had softened a bit, we had a chance to ask if anybody wanted to put their faith in Jesus. And that if they did, to just go ahead and raise their hands and that we would pray with them. Now, to my surprise, every single one of the 12 adults that were in that room that day, including the village witch doctor, raised their hands and said that they wanted to believe. And I'm just thinking, what? How did that happen? How is it that before, when I had all of this good information and I was sharing um, the gospel, we didn't see any fruit. And then there's this muddled message through rain and all these people have decided to come to faith. Now, a few weeks later, we find out exactly why this amazing thing took place. And it wasn't despite the rain, but it was actually, in fact, because of the rain that these people had come to faith. What I had forgotten was that the day that we saw this rain and saw these people saved was actually the second day that we had gone up to this village. We had gone the day before to try to evangelize there, but because it was a regular work day, most of the adults had gone out to their fields and to their farms to work. And it was very few people that were remaining in the village. But with not wanting to just leave without saying anything, we had gathered the few people that were still in the village and we had prayed for them. 
Now we prayed for healing and various things, but the number one prayer request at that time that multiple people asked for was for rain. You see, that year we had a devastating drought in Thailand. And it was in July, it was well into the rainy season and there hadn't been enough rain. And these farming families thought that actually their crops would be destroyed, that they wouldn't be able to harvest enough food, that they would have to potentially starve because of the drought. And so these animists were trying every which way to try to get it to rain. They had made sacrifices with the witch doctor to try to see if they might be able to do things to cause it to rain. But nothing had worked. But all of a sudden, this group of Christians comes into their village. They pray for rain. And the next day, while they are sharing about Jesus Christ, there is a loud thunderstorm. They weren't staring out the window because they were distracted. They were marveling at the Christian God who could make it rain. This is the supernatural power of the only God of heaven and earth who desires that no one should perish. Let it empower you as you fulfill the Great Commission. One of my favorite movies of all time is Out of Africa. And ever since watching that movie, I've wanted to visit Kenya. And ever since I was a little boy, uh, I am a fan of animal shows and nature, and I've always wanted to visit the Maasai Mara. I long to visit Africa, I long to visit Kenya, and to be able to visit with each of you. But more so than the natural beauty of Kenya, what I really desire is that someday soon, I will be able to meet you all in person and lay my spiritual eyes on all that God has done, all that God is doing right now, and all that God will continue to do through the bride that is at One Tribe. We are praying for you. We are rooting for you. And we'll be thinking of you here in Thailand and look forward to the day that we're able to meet. Godspeed and God bless.